Start again, start again, begin. Start again, everyone. Open book, open world. We don't know what will come. We just hope everyone. Say. Welcome to Caterpillar Goo. This is Flora. And this is Rod. What's today's episode about? Today is your interview with Travis. Was that a hundred years ago you interviewed Travis? Yes, I can <laughs> barely remember it. But it's very interesting. It was the first time I learned about Guillain Barre syndrome and uh, what he went through and how that transformed him into a better person. Was it a fun interview, an easy interview, a hard interview? Yeah, he was a um, fun interview. I, it was informative. I learned new information. It was good. I feel like I could have asked better questions to get more emotional things out of it. It's a hard balance. Like You want it to be emotional and personal so that it'll be more impactful, but then there's also kind of... Like you don't want it to be exploitative, you know? You don't want to yeah. take advantage of someone's feelings in that way, but you still want it to be personal and meaningful. It's, just, it's, it's an interesting thing to learn how to do. It is. So did you ever experience any health issues that had a big impact on your life? Any health issues, diseases? I guess if I cannot think of anything physical, I guess because I didn't really ever have any physical concerns um, but I did have mental concerns I had a depression which changed me in many many ways going through deep depression and suicidal ideation and coming out of that appreciating life more and wanting to better myself it wasn't an overnight change of course it took decades of um, self-reflection finding new ways to find beauty in life, connecting with people, pushing myself out of my comfort zone so I can connect with people and not just hide. I chose that, no, actually, I do want to live. I just have to find better ways to go about living. Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? When we think about health issues, we never think about mental illnesses, mental Uh, health issues. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's my story of my mental health issues because I never had physical health issues. I had, from the time I was born, I had respiratory problems. And it affected the way I saw myself and and what I was capable of. Like, I grew up thinking that I couldn't do physical activity. And it was confirmed for me a couple of times. Like, I, in seventh grade, I joined the football team and it was... Uh, off-season training and running and everything I actually passed out running and that was the end of my athletic adventures until I was probably almost 40 and then you know and when I got into my late 30s and started wanting to change my body and get healthier and everything and I started walking and then walking and running a little bit and then running more and I realized with 
small changes, incremental changes, pushing myself a little bit at a time, I wasn't as limited as I thought I was. After a couple of years of slowly amping up, I was running 5Ks and 10Ks and got all the way up to a half marathon and a triathlon and realized that I wasn't as limited as I thought I was. And I know that's probably not, you know, analogous to a lot of people's experience with health problems, you know. There's a lot of health issues you can't recover through, you know, incrementally pushing yourself a little more and a little more. But for me, it was a good life lesson that came out of the health limitations that I saw myself having. Yeah. If you were going to give this story a name, what would you call it? I don't know. What would you call it? I don't know. He talks about... A couple of times he talks about what could be spiritual awakenings or spiritual realizations that came out of the experience. If I was going to name the story, and I think it would have to have something to do with one of those two experiences. Like that seems to be where he gets meaning out of the out of the experience. I wonder if a lot of people do that. In order for them to heal, they turn to religion or, or some kind of spirituality. Did you think of a title? <laughs> there is no title. No. Here's Travis Mann talking about his experience with Guillain-Barre syndrome. My name is Travis Mann, and uh, I'm a teacher. I teach business and technical writing, which sounds boring, but I make it fun. At least I think I do. There's no wood around here to knock, but <laughs> um, I do that. I also do contracting a lot right now to train some medical assistants to become medical assistants. And I've got three kids, one beautiful wife, a dog, a bunch of chickens, and a cat that's driving me crazy. So, Chickens? Yeah, so... <laughs> and you've always lived over here or in Texas? Uh, pretty much in Texas. I grew up in the military. My dad was in the Army, and we traveled all over from California to Georgia to South Carolina. And uh, my parents divorced when I was 12, and we moved back to Weatherford, which is a little town outside of Fort Worth. Okay. And uh, then I came down here uh, to Austin after I fell in love with my wife. How did you get into teaching? Um, I got into teaching not on a whim, but just on a, I, I, was, I was in higher education fundraising for the longest time where I raised money for colleges and I was working at a medical school. And um, I wa- have always wanted to try my hand at teaching something. So I knew one of the presidents of one of the community colleges there and she sent me down to the English chair and I went and met with her and we talked for about 20, 30 minutes, and there was only one class I could teach, which is a developmental class, developmental English. And after 30 minutes, she pushed the books across the way to me and said, go get them, Tiger. That's all the training I had. Oh, wow. To be a teacher, and I'm like, oh, yeah, I got this. And 
the first day I woke up and I thought, what the heck am I doing? I have no idea how to teach. And by the third day I walked out and I found myself saying aloud, this is what I want to do. Wow. I can't believe they're going to pay me for this. That's awesome. Yeah. To discover something accidentally. Yeah, 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 yeah. Especially something I love to do. Yeah. You know, it's not always perfect, but it's, it's so fascinating to me. Okay. So, and here I am. And here you are. Uh-huh. When I uh, I emailed you and I asked you what transfer, uh, transformation story would you like to tell, and uh-huh. you, I hope I'm going to pronounce this sure. right, Guillain-Barre syndrome? Exactly. Guillain-Barre is exactly what it was. And you had that in your late 20s, and you said it was the worst thing and the best thing that ever happened to yeah. you. So please, share. Yeah. Okay. So, I was 27, and... Um, one Sunday, I took a run, and I ran about six or eight miles, and had it was a fantastic run. Felt good, felt great, that kind of stuff. Within two weeks after that, I was in a cardiac care unit, a critical care unit, oh, wow. and I could barely move. And so it was a weird juxtaposition in my head to yeah. see, I was able to run here, and then all of a sudden, I'm in a critical care unit. Yeah. After, after that Sunday run, a couple days later, I started feeling bad, got an upper respiratory infection, coughing, all that kind of stuff. But something was different about this, and I kept feeling weaker and weaker and weaker and no you know the doc just said we think you're sick uh, with a cold but then I got up one Friday morning and you know a gallon of milk how you have to pop the top off I couldn't do it and I thought to myself something is really really not right Mm -hmm. and so I called my best friend who was a doctor he said come to the hospital he was working in the ER so Were you living by yourself at that time? No, I was married to uh, my second wife, okay. Melissa, and uh, went down there and they ran all these tests and they brought in infectious disease people and all that kind of stuff. It was actually my best friend's nurse who says, I think you may have Guillain-Barre. And then my friend, the doctor said, wow, I never even considered that. So what they do is they do a spinal tap and they mm-hmm. check out fluids in your, in your spinal tap. Yeah. And sure enough, that's what it was. Guillain-Barre is a, a strange syndrome. It's not something you can catch. Um, it's something where the body turns on itself and the immune system starts attacking cells. Yeah. And it's the, um, the long nerves that run to your hands and fingers from your brain. Yeah. They're, they're covered in a um, um, tissue called myelin. Yeah. And the, um, your white blood cells and all that kind of start eating away the myelin on the sheaths, and so you don't conduct electricity down to your hands right. and your feet, and it goes from exterior extremity in. And at, at this point, did you know what that syndrome was? I had heard of it, and we had looked it up online, okay. but that's about it. How were you feeling at that time? Uh, scared. 
I was very afraid, uh, mostly because out of ignorance, I didn't know what was happening. I didn't know what would happen, what could happen. Right. Uh, then, of course, you know, when you when you hit that spot, um, you begin to look like worst case scenarios, and worst mm-hmm. case scenarios is in a wheelchair and all that stuff. If you don't recover well, right. I'm like great. Um, Guillain Barre made a big appearance in the United States. It's, it's typically, 90% of the time, it, it's kicked off by an upper respiratory infection, but sometimes vaccines or shots can, can cause the body's immune system to turn on, its, on itself. What are some of the, the, I guess, the first physical symptoms that you uh, felt? Uh, Weakness, um, you know, walking was difficult, picking stuff up was difficult. Um, As it progresses, you get weaker and weaker. And and the the one place you don't want to go is when your diaphragm gets affected Mm -hmm. and it becomes difficult to breathe. They put you on a, a, a ventilator. And if they put you on a ventilator, the outcomes are not as good as doing without a ventilator. And so I was just like determined not to go on a vent. I was in critical care unit. I was there uh, a little over, right under three weeks. Um, What they do is there's two treatments for it. One is a um, steroid injection, series of steroids, or what they call plasmapheresis. Mm -hmm. Plasmapheresis they use um, a dialysis machine. They pump your blood out and they remove the plasma. And then they put all the cells with fresh plasma back in, which sounds weird, but uh, by the second time I could tell it had arrested my, my fall, my, my slide down. Okay. And um, uh, nights in the critical care unit were the hardest because I don't sleep well, never really have. But in a situation like that where, you know, they close your door a little bit, but they leave it open so they can check on you. Then there's always people moving and that kind of stuff. Yeah. And it was, you know, middle of the nights. It's like, what happens if I don't, yeah. you know, it's the what ifs that occur. Like, and, you, uh, like you, what if you start breathing like that kind of fear? No. What if I don't recover? Okay. Um, I, I wasn't too concerned about myself in the moment. Because okay. I had read enough by, you know, by the first week, we'd had a really good idea of what it was and how to arrest it and that kind of stuff. Right. But some people don't recover as well. And I was like, what if I'm one of those people that, that doesn't really recover from this? Yeah. And um, who was your biggest support during that time? Uh, it was my wife, Melissa. Okay. Uh, very supportive. Um, okay. And the funny thing is people would come in and see me. And because because of how the disease process works and it, it takes away the ability to conduct signals between your brain and parts of your body. My whole face was, I looked great because there were no wrinkles, there were no nothing because of the disease process. People would come and go, you look great. And I'm like, uh, <laughs> thank you. I appreciate you telling me I look great, but yeah. I don't feel great. Yeah. But it was about the second weekend 
that I, I woke up from a dream, and I can't remember the dream to this day. I just remember it was something that was going to happen. Yeah. And um, I really had this, this feeling of, it, I had a feeling of, it's going to be okay. I don't know why. I'm not a religious guy, fairly yeah. agnostic. But something beyond me let me know that it would be okay. Oh, wow. And in that moment, I thought, wow, this is, this is absolutely horrible, and this is absolutely great. Yeah. Because uh, it really taught me about myself, right. my world, and the world itself. So, yeah. Yeah, it was, uh, it was a transformative experience. It wasn't all good. Yeah. Um, but life is never all good. There's, no, you have to isn't. take the pieces as they come. Right. Right. and decide how you're going to look at yourself and look at these things that happen to you. So. Right. Yeah, and then they finally moved me out of critical care when I finished my plasmapheresis. There were five of them. Yeah. And that was odd because... It's a strange feeling to watch your blood come out and and circulate through here and then come yeah. back in through another tube and yeah. it was it was kind of weird and it was cold, freezing cold. So after after five treatments, uh, they moved me out of critical care, and because I was an employee at the hospital and fairly high up in the rankings, they gave me this big beautiful room, right, the VIP room. Yeah. And uh, that was nice, but after a week, I'm like, I gotta get out of here. Yeah. Because I just had to get home and get some sleep. Yeah. You know, they'd come in at two in the morning, draw blood, mm-hmm. all that kind of stuff, and you wake up and just, I just wanted rest. Right. So my wife picked me up. Everybody knew I was going home, so they were like, all right, if something happens, you call us, we'll come get you. And I'm like, yeah. yep, that's fine. So we went out to get Mexican food because I had eaten hospital <laughs> food for the longest time, yeah. and I could barely cut the stuff on my plate, but I was determined to eat. By the time I was done eating, I had only been out of the hospital for 45 minutes. Yeah. I was wiped out. Oh. Melissa had to help me up the stairs. We yeah. lived in the second floor in an apartment. And um, it, was, it was a realization that I've got a long way to go. I was so tired just from leaving the hospital, getting in the car, yeah. and walking in the restaurant. And that was a strange feeling. Yeah. Again, I kept thinking, wow, you know, six weeks ago I was running six to eight miles and getting ready for a marathon. Right. And uh, now I can barely walk. So I started, we lived on the second floor, so I started taking the stairs down to the landing and going up. I'd have to go back to bed. It was, your muscles, it's it's fascinating how much strength you lose by laying in bed doing nothing. Right. I mean, it was just really hard. But Melissa, we'd get up and we'd walk down to the stop sign and then come back and then walk down this road and you know, just kept doing it over and over and over, and I wasn't back at work yet. I guess it was about right at three months that I went back to work yeah. and I didn't want to go back. I, I just was like, wanted to just hide. And little did I know I was suffering from 
pretty severe depression at that point. Yeah. Uh, depression just because even though I, I knew, I felt myself getting better, it was a depression. It's like, dang, why did this happen to me? Yeah. And um, even though I had that feeling that I'd be okay, it's still depression. And um, there was one time that I realized I was not contemplating suicide, but thinking about suicide. Yeah. Because there comes a point where sometimes you just want whatever you're going through to end. Right. And I was coming down a road, and I was coming over a hill, coming down the hill, and it was a four lane, and I was in the left lane, and this 18-wheeler was coming at me, and I thought, wow, it'd be so easy just to drift over in that lane. Wow. And I had to pull over and say, yeah. you know, wait a minute, because that, that, that was, that scared me. Yeah. And so I got some help, uh, started taking medication. I'm a big one for therapy. Oh, yeah, me I, too. Yeah, because yeah. it does wonders. And yeah. they usually tell you what you already know, but you, you know how that works. Yeah, so, so when you were um, in that moment thinking about taking your life, yeah, what made you decide not to do that? Um, it scared me that that thought even came into my head. Okay. And, and it, was, it wasn't a thought of I'm going to do it. Yeah. It was a what if. Yeah. What if I did this? And um, that that frightened me just to be thinking that way. And I know, you know, throughout life, some of us do the same thing. You know, mm -hmm. the, we think, ah, this is just not worth it, that kind yeah. of stuff. Right. But and um, this moment came after, how long has it been since you left the hospital and back at, back at home? I was about a month after I was back at work. Okay. I was still, I was trying to go to work full time and I would make it till 11 or 12 and I just was wiped out. I had a boss who was, uh, we, we got along pretty well, but every once in a while we'd have, we'd tangle. And he, he kept telling me, you just got to come back to work. You just got to come back to work. Mm -hmm. And he wasn't doing it for the job. He was doing it more from my perspective. And he was absolutely right. After a while, I figured out, yeah, I got to get back in this routine. Right. I need to have that routine of coming to work. And he was absolutely right. And um, Did you have um, physical therapy? What did you have to yeah, do? Yeah, I had all kinds of physical therapy and, okay. you know, putting my fingers together and that kind of stuff. And, okay. um, and then you also had um, therapy for your depression as well. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And did it help? Yeah. Uh, okay. It took about two years before I got off of meds, and that's okay. kind of classic for depression. Yeah. But... The, the nice thing that happened was almost a year from the date I went in, I ran a marathon. Oh, wow. And it wasn't great time, but I completed the marathon. Oh, and that's wow. what I'd wanted to do anyway. It was my first one. Yeah. And um, it was a lot of fun. I'm, I'm, I felt closure at that point. That's awesome. Still wasn't back all the way. Um, my feet still bother me because the extremities, it's neuropathy yeah. there and in my hands sometimes too. So, but I'm, I would call myself completely healed. Wow. And there is no cure for it, right? No, there's just treatment. Yeah, there's just treatment. And some people don't do well. Right. And for about seven years after that, 
Every time somebody was was diagnosed with with Guillain-Barre of, of any form, they're different forms. You know, I'd get the call. Can you come down and talk to this person? Yep. So. And how long would you say it took you to fully recover? Probably about three years. About three years from when it started. And you ran the marathon how many years? A year after. A year after. Wow, you weren't even fully healed, but you still did it. Wow. I still did it. So I am happy, healthy. Yeah. I feel great. Good. It was a transformative experience. Yeah. Uh, sometimes I find myself forgetting about it, and that may be a weird way to say it. Mm-hmm. But I've been thinking about it since I knew I was coming to see you. Yeah. And I look back and can't remember the the bad stuff as much as I can remember the good stuff and that's that's good for me because uh, I'm I'm one of those uh, not really doom and gloom but it's like what if this goes bad and this goes yeah. bad and that goes and I'm, I'm trying to teach myself not to not to think that way uh, I don't think you can unthink something but you can recognize when you're doing something that's detrimental to yourself. Yes, for sure, and especially at our age. Yeah, yes. especially at our age. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So what are some of the good things that you thought of that came out of this? Um, my wife at the time was was just fantastic. She was, um, she was my best friend and she was my wife and uh, she was really good to me. And I had so many people that came out of the woodwork to offer help. You know, everybody says, let me help. What can I do? That kind of stuff. And you know, nine times out of 10, there's nothing anybody can do, but then there would be that one person that would come along and, you know, you they'd say that and you'd say, yeah, this is what I need. And man, they do it right then, which is cool. Yeah. So, yeah. And what would you say is, I mean, obviously the worst part was thinking that you will, um, might not recover, right. but was there anything else? Um, I guess maybe most of it is mental at that point um, that you're thinking you can what if yourself into a corner really quickly. Mm-hmm. And a couple of times in the middle of the night, I found myself painting myself in the corner and I had to stop and visualize that this was going to be okay. Um, and so that, that taught me a little about myself in terms of recognizing to step back and look back at what I'm thinking and why am I thinking that and is it doing me any good and if it's not I need to quit and do something different think something different did Tai Chi after after Guillain-Barre for about four years and loved it and would like to get back into it again but it just takes a commitment but um, there was one time I was doing Tai Chi and it's slow movements up and down and that kind of stuff and, and I turned to do another movement and inside my head this big void opened up and it, it was it was it was black and darkness and quiet and not scary, but it was it was something that I still don't understand. And it's it just stayed with me throughout the whole series of movements and then kind of receded. 
I still don't know what it is. And I was asking the Tai Chi guy, I'm going, dude, this is what happened to me, this kind of stuff. And he goes, yep, sounds like something happened. That's all he said. <laughs> so it's a, it was a strange, comforting, you know, it wasn't scary. It was, yeah. it was, uh, it was just there, a feeling of a void, of, a, of complete blackness and emptiness. But again, not scary, just, and not a void that needed to be filled, just a presence of something. What did you take away from that experience? Meaning, what did you learn about yourself? Probably the things I learned the most were that no matter what, it's going to be okay. Had I been, ended up in a wheelchair, it would have been okay. Um, that's just the way life goes. And we've all been around the bend a couple times, and you know, you, you learn to not giving up, but accepting how things are going and how things are. I also learned to depend on myself more, to trust myself. I trusted my reactions more. I also learned that people step out of out of regular life many times meaning you know you go to work you go to work you have three weeks off a year you go on vacation whatever and you come back and go to work and here here's here was a moment where I didn't work I didn't work for you know almost three months and it was a weird feeling but it also was like what if I didn't work how, how would it be well wouldn't have as much income and that kind of stuff but how you know we get stuck on treadmills. So what would it be like not to have to work like that? And so I built that in. My wife and I have a plan for, we, we're gonna work for five more years and then we're gonna look around and say, what do we really wanna do? Do we wanna keep doing this, you know, for the sake of doing it or do we wanna do something different? And so we're both leaning toward doing something different like moving to Mexico. Uh, buying a small place on a little island off of Cancun, staying there for six months, and then going to Portugal for six months and living there. Yeah. So I can still teach. I can teach online. That's true. And if I taught, you know, two classes a semester, that'll cover our living expenses. And so I don't know. We're toying with these ideas and stuff. And I love that um, the way you can switch your perspective to something positive or, or think that, um, like you said, acceptance, that... Yes, you know, even if I am in a wheelchair, it'll be okay. Uh-huh. Now, were you always like that, or is that f- no. from there on uh, you became I that? I think that was the turning point when I was, this happened when I was 27, you know. I, I look back, and 27 was one of my favorite ages, you know. Yeah. Everybody's like, oh, I want to be X again. Never want to go back to high school, never want to go back to teenage stuff. But yeah. 27 was pretty cool, except for Guillaume Barre, but you know, it was pretty cool. What advice do you have for the next generation about living their best life? I'm a college professor, and what we are doing poorly as a society is we're demanding that 17-year-olds and 18-year-olds make a decision on what they want to do for the rest of their life. Mm-hmm. That is freaking wrong. Yep, I agree. That is just, yeah. I mean, you see it. Mm-hmm. Um, 
you know, we're like, okay, what are you going to do? Like my, my oldest son, he graduates from UT next year with a computer science degree. And the first year he was at UT, he lived on campus. I'm the one that went and helped clean his dorm out. So it's just me and him. And we're, we're pretty close. And we were driving back home. And I said, how was it? And he goes, yeah, it was okay. And it was at that moment that I realized he really, he can do this work, but he, it's not going to really excite him. Mm-hmm. So I started asking, what, 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 you know, I always ask people, if you knew you couldn't fail, what would you do? Yeah. If you knew, is anything in the world, if you knew you couldn't fail, what would you do? He goes, I think I'd be a writer or a journalist. Yeah. And he's a very good writer and I teach writing and, yeah. you know, I always looked at his papers and his papers were well above what others were writing. Right. And I said, well, do both. You can be a writer about or a journalist about technology and that kind of stuff. So, right. so my advice is if you want to do something, do it. I would also encourage everyone, especially young people, young people 16 to 25, whatever, travel, go overseas, mm-hmm. see how other people live, come back and you'll appreciate things like our toilets, uh-huh. our dishwashers, <laughs> central that kind of air, stuff. central air, yeah, no <laughs> kidding, oh my God, Yeah. but um, I traveled when I was a teenager, because my, when my parents divorced, my dad moved overseas yeah. with the military, and so we'd go spend summers with him. So I went to Turkey and Germany and other places in Europe, and it was just eye-opening. Even as a 14-year-old, the, the travel to learn different cultures and yeah. see different cultures and see how people live is, is imperative to our success as a nation at this point. Right. Right. Um, I'm afraid, you know, this is not doom and gloom. This is a real fear of our nation changing coming up. Yeah. Um, I won't get into political discussions, but it's just, it's just frightening. Uh, we're, we're, in a, we're an experiment. Democracy is an experiment. Yeah. And in two years, we could be, it could be totally different. something that I want to ask in all my interviews my last question right uh, what is your superpower I love that question <laughs> I use that same question in my in my class as well too. oh cool I think my superpower and this is really weird and this is a kind of the third time I've articulated it this way I build doors and windows when I teach I build doors and windows um, and my students everybody's like wow you're a great teacher you've taught me blah 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 and I'm like you know I didn't do anything I built some doors and windows and you decided to look out and you decided to go for it. And you, you know, I always say my students do it on their own because they have to. I mean, we used to think of education as like empty brains and you're pouring something into Mm -hmm. the brains. That's not how learning works. Right. 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 And so I, I, I have come to the conclusion that that's what I do. I'm a carpenter and I build these things and the students, you know, love to go through them sometimes. 
So my superpower is, is recognizing when students are ready for that light bulb to go off. That's great. So yeah. That makes you a great teacher. I, I love that answer from a teacher. Uh-huh. That's great. Yeah. Wow. You know, as I said, the third day I walked out of class and I found myself saying aloud, I can't believe they're going to pay me for this. Yeah. And it was like right then I knew I'd become a teacher. Yeah. And I did and I've loved it ever since. That was Travis Mann talking about his experiences with Guillain-Barre syndrome. And how it transformed him. I like how he talked about something outside of himself, telling him that it was going to be okay. I don't know that I've ever heard a voice that seemed to come from outside of myself. But I I have experienced like where he talked about when he talks about doing Tai Chi and experiencing a kind of void in his head. I had something that seemed similar to me when I was going through a lot of stress and emotional upheaval from uh, a breakup and I hadn't slept for something like three days and one night just had a very, had a very weird night and from that night on I finally had like silence in my head and I wonder if that's what he means by a void I have a constant I think like most people I have a constant inner monologue going on and I just hit a point where that like broke for a little while and it was very it was very peaceful (laughs) it was very peaceful and relaxing and it helped me let go of some things that kind of emptiness and quiet for a little bit it was a good thing and that happened automatically without you doing anything. Aside from not sleeping for three days. <laughs> <laughs> I had a kind of hallucination that my head separated from my body and started to float away. And and after that, it was quiet for a bit. It was nice. But yeah, I didn't do anything to make it happen. I wasn't meditating. I wasn't doing Tai Chi like Travis was. Drugs or alcohol? No, that was... I had been sober for a year, more than a year. Yeah, I'd been sober for a while. It wasn't chemically induced. It was just stress and lack of sleep. It broke my head. It was nice. (laughs) (laughs) That's what you needed. It was what I needed. So I wonder if that's what Travis got. So who are you going to interview next, Flora? You, again. Me again. For the 10th time. But we've already done me several times. <laughs> I did an interview through email. Uh, so that was a bit difficult since it wasn't face-to-face. And um, it was hard to coax the answers that I wanted out of him. Like more details, more more personal. But yeah, it's about how his religion growing up hinduism how he evolved from that to something else he found a different kind of spirituality we've still got a couple more interviews coming up that we're working on still editing and putting music to it 
Thanks for listening to Caterpillar Goo, Tales of Transformation. I'm Rod. And I'm Flora. See you next time. Bye.